Welcome to Season 2 of Mentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is Season 2, Episode 7, The Underrepresented Minority Experience in Otolaryngology, Part 1. My guest today is Dr. Troy Woodard. Troy is originally from Nashville, Tennessee. He attended the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and completed his otolaryngology training at Loyola University Medical Center. After residency, Troy pursued a fellowship in advanced rhinology and sinus surgery at the Medical College of Georgia. Troy joined the faculty at the Cleveland Clinic and has practiced there for 11 years. He is the immediate past president of the Harry Barnes Medical Society, a past chair of the section of otolaryngology of the National Medical Association, and a member at large of the Board of Governors of the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. Welcome to the show, Troy. Thanks, Christina. I'm really glad to be here. I think this is a wonderful initiative that you're, you're leading. Yeah, it's a passion close to my heart. I do want to make it clear before we start that this is really about one person's experience, and I don't want to make you feel like you're speaking for all you know, African-American or Black yeah. or laryngologists um, or people in general. So yeah. I wanted to say that first of all. But in that vein, I wanted to hear your story of diversity and, and how you identify. So, you know, I grew up in the South in a single parent household and really growing up in Nashville at that time, it was really white and Black. You know, I think there was two Jewish people in my high school, no Hispanics. I think the only person that spoke Spanish that I remember was from Venezuela. And so not really diverse at all. I'm what the second person in my family to go to college. And, you know, I always wanted to be a, a surgeon actually since the seventh grade, never really had exposure to it though, but I just thought it sounded awesome. Right. And so I was fortunate to come in contact with a lady named Barbara Merrill. She was a Dean at Tennessee state university. And I told her I was interested in medicine and she introduced me to this program. At that time, it was called MMEP. So it was like a minority summer enrichment program geared towards getting minorities into the health sciences, basically. And so I participated and did a summer while I was in high school at Vanderbilt. And that just really, I loved it. And it solidified, you know, my desire to become a physician. And so, you know, you ask the question of how do I identify? Really, I, I would say I'm Black, but, you know, I'm open to being African-American. To me, they're pretty similar. I know there are some slight differences, but that's not really a big deal to me. And then from there, how did you decide, once you got to medical school, how did you decide to be an otolaryngologist? So this is pretty interesting. When I was in high school, I met a girl in that same program. That's right. always how it starts, right? Right, exactly. You meet a girl, right? So in that same minority program, and she said, you know, you remind me of Ben Carson. And I was like, who is Ben Carson? And so she gave me the book for a birthday gift one day. And so I read it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so like me. You know, of course, I want to be like this great, you know, neurosurgeon. But I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do brain surgery and be just like him. So all the way up, from seventh grade up until med school. I even got into Johns Hopkins and was on my neurosurgery rotation. And he was at Hopkins at the same time. 
And I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. But I realized in the middle of one surgery, I, I'll never forget that. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is not interesting. <laughs> and I'm like, is this all the brain does? And so, <laughs> so, you know, then I started thinking and then those 5 a.m. rounds with the 4.30 pre-rounds kind of got to me. And one thing that I really noticed was that a lot of the patients, they kind of they had bad outcomes or not the outcomes that I would consider you know, great outcomes. Like a lot of them went to skilled nursing facilities and couldn't really have a great conversation back. And so I realized that that was not for me. All right. And so I knew I wanted to be a surgeon, but I started rotating through all the subspecialties. I mean, I did everything, urology, ortho, trauma, general. And finally, my last rotation was ENT. And so it just so happened, there were two young physicians there who just started, Dr. Howard Francis and Marion Couch. And so they were great. I mean, one, you know, I looked to them as my first mentors in medical school. And, you know, I saw how Dr. Couch was able to have a family and still be successful as a head and neck surgeon. And then, you know, she's gone on to do great things. And then the same with Dr. Francis, you know, he was just a great wise person. That's what I like to call him. And he had a lot of great advice. And so I thought, man, I could be like these two. This is what I want my career to be like. And so that's how I chose otolaryngology. Yeah. All right. So when are you going to become chair? Since your mentors all became chairs. Well, no, yeah, well, <laughs> my goal is actually to become president of a hospital system. Oh, nice. So all right. I, I figured you could, I was thinking about that, you know, Christina, and my thoughts are you could have a bigger effect on the community by being the president of the system. You know, I'm, I'm at Cleveland Clinic and I think of how intertwined we are with our community. And I thought, you know, there's really some things that I would like to do if I was in that position. So that's why I'm aiming to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course you specialized in rhinology, which makes yes. sense given your story about right. wanting to be near the brain, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> were there any specific rhinologists along the way that really influenced you? So starting off though, I actually liked head and neck cancer. Okay. Right? And so, you know, the anatomy, everything was so cool, you know, but throughout my residency, I grew very tired. I'm sure many of the residents feel that way. And then I realized, you know, hmm, is there something else? So I started looking and then I came across Jim Stankowitz. He was our rhinologist at Loyola. Very great guy, good mentor as well. Fun to be around. At that time, I would say rhinology, it started in the 80s. And so I did my residency from 2003 to 2008. And so it was still pretty much uh, not quite in its infancy, but I would say still had a lot of advancement to be done. And so I love the fact that you work off of a, a video screen. It felt like a video game to me. I also love the fact that patients had good outcomes. And then, you know, I was thinking about this probably about five years ago, as I was just kind of reflecting, I was like, you know what, it's interesting because now I do, I do a lot of skull-based surgery. I work hand in hand with the neurosurgeon. And so it's kind of like I made a whole full circle back, except, you know, I get to go home earlier and <laughs> wake up a little bit later. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. the smarter choice. I mean, right. yeah, yeah. All right. So did you ever have an experience along the way of feeling discouraged from pursuing this career? I mean, whether that was even 
going to medical school or pursuing otolaryngology as a surgical specialty related to being a person of color? I believe so. I mean, there are several instances, but the two that stand out to me actually occurred when I was in one when I was in high school and one when I was in college. So like I said, I grew up in Nashville and at that time it was pretty small. So I wanted to go away to a big city. And so my mother was like, okay, you can go away to whatever place is within one day's driving distance. So I figured it out. That was DC, Chicago, and like down to Florida. And so I was like, Georgetown, that's the place I want to go. So went through my interviews and paired me up with a physician. And initially I was excited, but by the time I got out of there, I was pretty disappointed. You know, during the interview, the physician kept stating how rigorous and tough the curricula was at Georgetown. And I was like, okay, but by the time you, you mentioned that five times, I'm thinking to myself, okay, what is he thinking? And then actually at the very end of the interview, he said he wasn't sure I had what it took to matriculate there. So, you know, I didn't get in there. I was pretty disappointed. But that still made me more determined. And then the other incident occurred when I was in college. I was meeting with my advisors going over just the list of medical schools. And I think I probably had 10 or 11. And it was pretty interesting because the gentleman was like, you do understand that these are the top 10 medical schools. And I was like, well, I looked them up on the internet. The internet had just come out. So <laughs> they had great websites for the time. Yeah. <laughs> the others look good in the book. And I was like, yeah, but these are the ones I like. And he basically said, you know, you're aiming too high. In retrospect, he could have phrased it differently and says, okay, well, that's good. But why don't you just broaden your horizon? You know, have different tiers of school that you apply to. That would have sound much better than basically no, you're aiming too high. You need to start looking at these particular schools. And I was like, wow, he doesn't think I can do it. And keep in mind, at that time, I had a 4.0 GPA and I was a division one sprinter and high jumper. So, you <laughs> yeah, know, so you had the qualifications, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I couldn't figure out what else, you know, other than color. Neither one really specifically came out and said, hey, it's your color. But right. to me, that was the only difference that separated me from the others. And so this is kind of a funny ending to both of those, ties it together. I kind of got determined to prove him wrong. Ended up, I think I ended up getting accepted to something like 12 medical schools, including Hopkins and Georgetown. And I only applied to Georgetown so I could get accepted and turn them down. So that's what I did. <laughs> getting back at them. <laughs> right. I was like, I'm getting you back. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. So then you get through your training. Yep. Have you had experiences with patients or colleagues where you've encountered bias, either subtle or, or egregious? Right. Yes, both. And what I realized is that I was under the impression that once you got your degree, once you became an MD, finished your training, that you were on the equal footing as everyone else and that people don't discriminate or have some type of unconscious bias against you. I was wrong, you know? And how do I know I was wrong? Well, there's some blatant things like a patient experience, right? So it, this happens, eh, I guess, maybe once or twice every few years where I'll have a fellow in the room and the patient will just look at them and address them, you know? And even actually a couple years ago, I left the room and the patient asked my fellow, 
is he qualified to do this? Is he even board certified? And it was interesting because I asked my fellow, I said, so how did you approach that? That's interesting. What did you say? You know, and he says, well, I just told her the truth that you're well qualified. You've done uh, thousands of these surgeries and that I am not certified, but you are, you know, and I was like, okay, well, that you handle that, you know, and so it was interesting. And I thought it was a good learning experience for him too, to actually see that these things do happen because he he had no idea that occurred would occur. One incident, I remember I had been working at my job for about three years. I was taking a break. You know, the turnover in our ORs are kind of egregious, about an hour, hour and a half in between cases. And so long day, I went to the surgeon's lounge to just close my eyes. And while I'm in there, a gentleman, I hear two gentlemen talking, and then one taps me on the shoulder and is like, excuse me, this room is for surgeons only. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, I I know that, but I'm a surgeon. And then he was like, you're a surgeon. I was like, yeah, I'm a surgeon. And then I closed my eyes again. And then five times this gentleman asked me, and I says, look, if I was white, East Asian or Indian, you wouldn't ask me that. I'm not going to answer you again. You know, basically leave me alone. And so he had the nerve to actually get upset and said I offended him. But, you know, (laughs) it, it just shows you that, you're going to have these episodes or incidences where, you know, people do like unknowingly or knowingly discriminate against you. I think the key though is how you react to it. And so I see myself still growing in that. Now I try not to come hot-headed, right? I try to use the the time to kind of educate or, you know, if they think I'm ignorant, I try to prove to them or just respond in how I normally would, you know, in an educated, respectful manner. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How important is it when you have these situations that you have other mentors of color that you can reach out to and kind of discuss this with them? Like, and have you been able to find that in our field that has very limited physicians of color? It's really important to actually see people that look like you in the position that you're starting to come, right? Because you can have this vision, but I find that you're more successful in attaining it if you visualize yourself in that vision. And so, you know, I I struggled with some relationships during my residency and, you know, felt like, hey, I'm the only one, the only African-American that this program has ever had. And what I realized too is that sometimes just by the way that we're raised and our cultural differences, you know, there's a, there are two different wavelengths. And I don't necessarily think that people are always out to do you harm or want the bad things for you, but you know, it's hard to navigate the system if you're not familiar with it. And so during that time, I actually reached out to several people who were like, Hey, you can make it. Let me give you some tips. This is what I did. You know, this is what you should do. Check back with me in a couple of weeks. I mean, to hear that other people's stories too, of how they struggled, but then also how they overcame those hurdles. That was actually, I guess, inspiring. And that was how I made it through. It sounds like mentors reached out to you. Like, it sounds like there was kind of a more proactive mentorship relationship from the mentor side for you. Right. Yes, there was. Okay. Um, That's great. And you know, that doesn't always happen, right? Because we're kind of like in our little silos 
and so especially for like the younger folk, right? The the medical students, even the junior faculty. Just just give you a story of myself at Cleveland Clinic. I would say the first two or three years was pretty rough, right? I felt really isolated, really alone, didn't have any kind of support. And I went to our academy meeting. I saw some other attendees there in the Barnes Society, which is the African-American ENT Society or Minority ENT Society. And, you know, I was talking to them about it and they gave me some advice. But one thing that I actually took from that, Dana Thompson basically told me, hey, you need to go out and find a good mentor. And it doesn't matter if they're black or male. All that matters is that they're looking out for you, have your best interests at heart, you know, and really they don't even have to be in your same department. And so I was able to find a couple people that really provided like a helping hand when I needed it, a listening ear when I needed it. And that changed my whole outlook. That just changed my whole, my whole world, right? I was really miserable and it just did a 180. Yeah. And I mean, I, remember those times, right? right? So as we started at the Cleveland Clinic at the same time, I was only right. there for three years, but I remember how hard of a time you seemed to be having those first right. couple of years. And then when I saw you at meetings after I left, you just seemed to have a much more positive outlook. Right. So I'm really glad that you right. were able to do that. One thing I would say too, though, that I learned too, is that it's not always the other person at fault too. Sometimes you contribute to your unhappiness, if that makes sense. And so what I would encourage people to do is take a step back from the situation and then look and see if there's anything else that you could do to change the outcome, right? I mean, yes, it may be 90% their fault, 10% yours, but you better make sure that you've tried to change that 10% that you contribute, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, but I think that's also a a burden that people of color have to carry too, which is unfair. You're right. Right. Yeah. So how has being an underrepresented minority in olaryngology shaped your national career path? So I would say really, it was mostly my upbringing. So remember I told you about the lady, Barbara Merrill. She, what she was doing was looking back and giving back to other kids and you know, helping them to succeed. And so now that I'm here, I'm in the midst of my career, we've discussed, uh, you and I have actually have discussed the state of diversity in our specialty. And it's really, really bad, right? Like one to 2% deplorable numbers. And the only way that's going to change is if we get involved really on a national level, right? And so what I decided to do was take a proactive role in trying to get people involved, right? Try to change attitudes, try to get the med students exposure early. I'm involved on a national level. Also locally, I try to mentor students just to hopefully introduce them to this field and see if they can enter it. Even if they don't, I still am happy that they've been exposed to it. So, Yeah, the pipeline, so to speak. Right, exactly. Yeah. So given that you're focusing on the pipeline, what advice would you give to medical students or residents who are pursuing otolaryngology? Okay. So my advice would be to step out of your comfort zone First, I would try to contact your department of otolaryngology, see if they have anyone who mentors can help successfully prepare you for the match because it is a competitive field. And if not, though, I would refer them to SUO, the Society of University of Otolaryngology, 
and the, the diversity website. There are a lot of resources out there. Also, the Barn Society, we are full of about 120 or so uh, minority otolaryngology professionals who are more than willing to coach, mentor, provide advice. The key is just getting exposure early. If you think it's something that you may be interested in, contact a physician and see if you can shadow them to get more experience. And then once you realize that this is the choice, then they can help guide you, you know, and and get your application ready. So if you could tell white people in our specialty something about being a URM in otolaryngology, Mm -hmm. what would you say? I think based off my experience, it would be that this is a tough field for minorities. You know, there are not many of us. And then based on my experience, you know, it's not enough just trying to increase diversity. You have to also increase inclusion, right? What's the point in bringing diverse group of individuals to to their company if you don't invite them to the table, if you don't have them become part of planning and discussion? So I think there also needs to be a focus on inclusion. Yeah, I completely agree with you. What do you think about the recent events? You know, I mean, George Floyd, but countless other names. Right. Uh, Do you think this is going to lead to permanent change? I hope so, right? I mean, there are some big things happening. And so Mm -hmm. it's easy to say, well, we've seen this scenario a thousand times before. It's all in the news. And then things go back to normal, right? Or back to the status quo, I should Mm -hmm. say. But there's a few things that are different. If you look and see who is holding the signs and the protesting, it's a lot of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures in other countries, you know? And so I think that's awesome, right? And so I, I'm hopeful that there is a change. I mean, if you look the past couple of days, Fortune 500 companies are making drastic policy changes. The Redskins are going to change their name, you know? And so yeah. <laughs> there are some big things happening. Hopefully, there won't be like a blowback. Sometimes you have all this change at once and then people seem to kind of regret that and kind of go back the opposite way. But I think this is a positive change. I guess time will just tell. Yeah. I mean, you have a young son who's grown up. I mean, have you had the talk with him? Have you? Oh, yes. So we actually do the talk several times a year. (laughs) (laughs) I started, man. So here in Cleveland, there was a eight-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, I think he was eight, Mm -hmm. and he had a play Nerf-type gun. And someone saw him playing in the park. They called the cops, and within one minute of getting there, the cops had shot him and killed him. And so from that point, actually, a couple years after that, my son had no guns, not at all. He could not. And then I bought him some, but he couldn't go outside the house with him. And so now We go over, hey, dude, my son is 10, but he's very big for his age. He's very tall. He looks like a teenager. And so I'm like, if you get, you know, stopped by a police officer, do not run, hands up, tell him your age, tell him you're not armed. Don't make any moves. I tell him, don't reach in your pocket. If he wants to see your ID, ask him to reach in your pocket. And, you know, I'm just, you have to keep it real. And then again, when all of this happened, what's interesting is, I didn't really think that TikTok got into all of this. I always thought it was only about dancing. But (laughs) yeah, my son, he was like, hey, dad, look at this. And it was someone just commenting on about the whole riots and, you know, George Floyd. I was like, whoa. So then 
he started asking me about why the cars are on fire. So we started talking about it. And then that was an opportunity for me to educate him too on the right way to protest, you know, and then again, how do you act if you are stopped by a police officer again? I wanted to make sure he was okay with it. He seems okay. You know, I guess if you start early, it kind of, hopefully that becomes ingrained. And so he kind of knows. It's a shame that we have to do it, but it's just part of it. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, we I also have a 10-year-old son. Our yeah. sons were born the same year. And yeah. I don't have to have that kind of conversation with right. them. You know, yeah. like we talk about current events and we talk about what's in the news and we talk mm-hmm. about privilege, but it's a very different conversation. Different. Right. Yeah, which is really sad, especially when you're talking about children. Right. And they're they're right. kids, you know. Right. And you don't necessarily want to have your kids afraid of the police, right? I mean, right. they're there to protect us. And so yeah, it's, yeah. Hopefully there will be change for this. So if you had to do it again, would you pick the same field? Absolutely. And if <laughs> I'm, you're... I'm, I'm happy with my life. I, I'm happy with, yes, it was the right decision. You know, I'm, I'm very happy. Yes. And if your son came to you and said, dad, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what would you say? Oh, so listen to this, Christina. I take him to the hospital to round with me, uh-huh. and I'm kind of disappointed because he's not interested at all. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what do you think about that? Oh, it was okay. Okay. You know, like, yeah. So, yes, I would like for him to follow my footsteps, but I think he's going to end up doing, like, right now he's into, like, snipers and uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, SWAT teams. There so, you go. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, we need, we need, you know, we need good uh, snipers as well. You know. Yeah, I was like, come <laughs> on, man. You know. Yeah, but he wants to. Right now, he's into military things. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Yeah, the video games. <laughs> right. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Is there anything else you want to add, Troy? No, I think this was this was great, Christina. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing all of these kind of vulnerable experiences that you've had. I think it'll really help mentorship of future leaders in our field. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Wishing you success and joy.